0: Welcome to the Jesus Collective Podcast. We're a network that exists to provide relationships and resources to amplify a Jesus centered movement, and we seek to embody a more hopeful vision of following Jesus in our cultural moment. Join us as we learn from those who are looking to live out a greater Jesus centricity in their areas of leadership and mission. If you're new to Jesus Collective, welcome. Check us out on social media or at jesuscollective.com for ways you can connect to this growing movement. Okay, let's get into today's podcast. Well, hello, listening audience. It's me, Paul Walker, one of your co-hosts, and I also have our beloved Shauna Bourne. Shauna, you're here.
1: (laughs) I'm here. I'm here. Ready to go.
0: Ready to go. How are you feeling today, Shauna? (laughs) So good.
1: <laughs> that was so good. Why?
0: Why? Well, we're continuing this reformation series, hey, that we've been in, this kind of new renovation. And and each week we've been unpacking like these these statements that we're we're longing, that we're working into. And and this week we're on statement number three that evil is overcome through the power of suffering love. And it's a loaded statement. And maybe like if you're not in some some certain traditions, you might be slightly curious like what do we even mean by this and so we yeah. need some help shauna i think we always need yeah. help every week always, always i'm so excited that we have with us a guest dr drew hart drew welcome to the podcast thanks paul thanks shauna
1: welcome drew yay so
0: i'm going to tell our listening audience a few things about you drew and then i'd love if you fill in the gaps because i'm sure you know beyond a bio, you you got more interesting things to say. Let's say, you you know, we'll let you say some things about yourself. But what I know about you, it's true. We go way back. I met you probably a decade ago, just as you were engaging some different theological circles. And I was like, I like this guy. He's amazing. And Today, I've discovered that you're a professor at Maasai University, you're an author of two books, uh, The Trouble I've Seen, and uh, Who Will Be a Witness, as well as you're a program director at Thriving Together, which is Congregations for Social Justice, and so much more. Welcome. And and yeah, what else could you tell us about yourself, Drew?
2: Yeah, um, I always, my my wife teases me that I have too many jobs, so... uh. (laughs) Overachiever. But, um, <laughs> one of the things I'm doing right now that's been uh, really uh, meaningful is partnering with Jared McKenna from Australia. Mm. Uh, he and I have been running uh, the Inverse Podcast and Inverse Community. Um, mm. So there's a public face to it which is the podcast exploring really interesting themes around scripture, people's lived story and theology and how that intersects with how they interpret scripture in ways that either liberate or do harm. Right. And so that's a lot of fun, but we also have a whole community behind that. Um, um, and so there's all kinds of fun stuff. I could, I could spend a whole, hour oh, yeah. just talking about that. So I'll stop there. Um, yeah. I think a lot of my other time in terms of volunteering is, partnering with uh, faith-based organizers and activists here in my city. Um, so I do a lot of, in fact, it seems like it's increased in terms of the heavy lifting, in terms of pulling people together um, and trying to encourage uh, clergy and faith communities in general to get involved in the good work that's happening here in the city of Harrisburg. And so, yeah, that's some of the
0: other stuff that I'm up to right now. So good. Yeah, your, your work with Jared is fantastic. I'm, I'm actually kind of curious. How did you meet Jared. Right. Like this Aussie guy, he's full of justice and, and truth. And I just love that guy. And I was like, how did Drew and him like get in the same room? It made me happy when you guys started that podcast. Yeah.
2: You know, it's hard to it. Honestly, it was a Twitter connection first. And I actually don't remember our initial gathering, but he says that he was stalking me. Right. That he was <laughs> kind of getting in my feed and trying to start conversations because I was doing my weird activism stuff, right? Mm. Uh, black theology, Anabaptism, activism. And so um, we quickly saw that we had a lot of common you know, heart around a lot of stuff, a lot of traditions and streams that influenced us. And so we became quick dialogue partners, initially just online, back when Skype was actually the means <laughs> by which you would talk to someone. We would use that wow. occasionally. Um, we've actually only been... In the room together one time, he actually <laughs> was in the U.S. Aww. and he uh, made a visit. He actually came all the way out to Messiah, came to my office, and he actually recorded me uh, for Inverse Podcast because Inverse preceded me. So I came in season three, and um, and so I was like guest three for the entire podcast. And so that was our first kind of actual in-person interaction together. Mm. Um, so we're looking forward to. Me getting over to Australia sometime and hanging out, but he's an amazing, uh, he's my uh, co-conspirator in good trouble. So I, I enjoy the relationship that we have and how we kind of play off of each other.
0: Well, well, it has good fruit. I, I I've got people in my church. They 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 really share it and they're really engaged in it. So it's um, as a pastor, I have so much appreciation that there are folks doing the work because I think like in the day to day ministry work of being a pastor, it's like man, I this This needs attention and and like to know that there are good people uh doing the work is just so exciting. I appreciate that yeah. thank you so let's get into our content today. We have this statement of renovation that evil is overcome through the power of suffering love and and as as we name this as we name this as a value of our kind of network that we're that we we're the Jesus collective and it's something that we're like, yes, we want to put a name to this this shift we're we're thinking about. What resonated with you as you heard that? Um, what causes you, Drew, to lean into that statement and not lean out? Yeah.
2: Yeah, I think um, for me, you know, when I hear evil is overcome through the power of suffering love, um, there's a lot of things that come to mind. First, I mean, it's... You know, if I want to be committed to joining and participating in what God is doing, and if God is fundamentally, most essentially characterized by love, right? That's that's what we're told in the New Testament. That's what the early church passed on to us, that, that God is most uh, clearly defined and articulated by the word love. Um, if that's the case, um, then first and foremost, you know, how else can I overcome evil but participating in what God is doing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that is love. And so, I don't know. That's the first thing for me is just a sense of participating and joining in in the movements and force that is God in the world. Um, but I also think, like, for me, one of the things that I think about is, you know, I've been really leaning into, um, you know, a uh, uh, theological imagination for the world to come. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you know we can use all kinds of different language for it. Sometimes uh, I, I like to talk about shalom quite a bit, uh, mm-hmm. but I also like uh, which King didn't coin it, but he made it popular. The language of beloved community, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and what I think, I think, I think Bonhoeffer,
0: about Bonhoeffer, yeah, Bon. Well, there's a whole bunch yeah. of
2: people, yeah. 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 It, but but when you when you think about this term beloved community, for me, what I mean by that is a community that um, well, it's a community where everyone belongs, where everyone can thrive. Um, but it's also a community where there's giving, receiving, and sharing of love. Right. Mm. Um, and, and if that is the end goal of like where we're going, right. This kind of interdependency with all of creation and God, um, in community, then that same kind of love that is shared, Also, I think for me, is the very means by which we get there. We're not going to get there by a different means than suddenly switch the, uh, flick the switch, right? And use a different method once we get there. It just doesn't work like that. You're going to reproduce the very kind of community that you've initiated from the beginning. Um, I think when I think about overcoming evil with love, um, I also think about the fact that, you know, You know, King said it best, you know, that nothing is more powerful than love and that only love is capable, right, of converting an enemy into a friend, right? Mm, And I think that really gets kind of fundamental. It doesn't promise or guarantee that everyone, that every enemy will become a friend, but it does. Uh, invite us to the only possibility where you don't have to destroy everyone else to get Mm -hmm. to that end goal um, and where there's a possibility forward um, where people can enter in and also join in that beloved community as well. And so I think there's something quite powerful um, and even very practical about just leaning into love and joining in what God is doing in the world. And I think that's the way of Jesus Christ that we've been invited to follow as well.
0: So I want to double click on something there uh, because you're quoting King and I, I love Dr. Martin Luther King, Jerry. It's so good. Uh, you're using this word love. And I wonder if you just want to flesh out what did King mean by that? What do you mean by that? Because there's some folks that are like, you know, I think love is a very nebulous term. And it had a particular definition within within King, at least. I, I'm curious if you could unpack that for us.
2: Yeah, I mean, for King, it, it's also a little fuzzy at times. I don't know if he's always using it consistently, to be fair. But, um, but I, I think the general gist is, which is where I resonate with him, is at the intersection of him defining it by the story of Jesus, right? Mm. I think that, that that is really important for him. And so he is thinking about love in terms of, um the capacity to see someone's full humanity to affirm the dignity of the other person Ooh. their value and worth um, and to refuse to destroy them, right? Um that you can't love someone and desire to destroy and kill them um, as the end goal, I think. And so I think for him, I think that is fundamental. And I think for me, like, you know, I mean, what's it? first John three sixteen through eighteen? We know love by this, that he laid mm. down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for one yeah. another. um, right. And so, and the interesting is it gives that really radical language, and it goes on as like, and then, if you see someone in need and you don't help them out, right, how can you have any love in you? And so um, it kind of takes it from this kind of dramatic kind of moment to this very practical response to the care of and for the well being of others. And I think that that is essential for me is that the Jesus story, his very life embodies what love looks like. And so, anytime I'm thinking about what love looks like, I'm thinking about the Jesus story, right? Mm-hmm. I'm thinking about how he engages individual people in a lot of different ways, right? Even confrontationally, even calling people out. And yet he's not coming, trying to, you know, come like, you know, slitting throats and such, right? Mm -hmm. He's giving space for them to actually repent as well. Even when he goes into the temple, I mean, that's love, right? Him going into the temple, clashing with the powers that be flipping tables, but creating the conditions upon which, they have to have a dilemma moment where they've got to respond and they could respond in a constructive way they don't but but that was a possibility that was at hand at that moment. Mm-hmm.
1: So good, Drew. Um, For our listeners, I bet you can tell already just how rich this conversation is going to be. Oh, yeah. And I've been reflecting on this statement that evil is overcome through the power of suffering love. And it is so countercultural. I don't care where you live. Drew and I are both in the States. Paula's our neighbor to the north. You know, we... I think that is not the norm that evil is overcome through the power of suffering love. Like how can you, how can suffering love overcome evil? We just don't think in that, those terms really. Um, And so I love that we're unpacking the statement, but I want to hone in on that evil part, Drew. And I want to ask you that in a fairly relativistic age, is it possible to name what evil is?
2: Yeah. So I would say how I I would answer that is that first we must all admit that we are finite human beings, um, that we are limited, that we're all biased, that we're all self-interested and interpret the world based on our own self-interests. Right. Yeah. Like it's just impossible to escape those dilemmas. Right. right? Right. So I think that that is there. Um, I think what is powerful about the idea that we lean into the Jesus story is we're saying that, that is going to be our lens through which we are interpreting the world and making sense of the world, right? Um, I think that's the power of, like, so we think about James Cone's The Cross and the Lynching Tree, right? Mm-hmm. It's taking one facet, one pivotal facet of the Jesus story, right? Jesus' crucifixion and saying, that's going to be the lens. I'm going to look through, look at the world through the lens of the crucified Christ. And all of a sudden we see the lynch in the crossing tree and how they uh, help us see and interpret the world and how we can name evil uh, happening in our world. And so I would say the GeoStory story is, is providing us, that lens through which we can name evil right mm. it's providing us a lens through which we can name systemic sins and harm that's happening and oppression that's happening in a world <laughs> precisely because it's inviting us into a new imagination a new way of seeing right mm. literally see anew through the birth life teachings death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and i think um too often even in the church um yeah. that has not been the case right mm. um that uh i mean it's, it's pretty easy, certainly in the United States and I guess everywhere in some degree, you know, to see the ways in which the church has just kind of been puppeted so that how it names evil and what it harps on is often majoring in the minors and minoring in the majors yes. as it relates yeah. to the concerns yeah. of Jesus Christ, right? Yeah. And so I do think that it does require a radical uh, realignment <laughs> of our values and convictions and ethics.
1: Yeah, I love that you said even in the church, because that's really what I was referring to that when I said countercultural, because, of course, as believers, much of what we believe and do is countercultural. But I'm seeing so much um, in, in high frequency, I will say, believers are those who, who proclaim Jesus wanting to overcome what they perceive as evil in really drastic um, anti-kingdom, anti- by Christ ways. And so I think this is such an important thing that we are digging into here.
0: Yeah. Mm. Good. I agree. I agree. Okay. And so, yeah, I, I think, so we can name evil. And, and I appreciate, Drew, that you're, not only do we know what love is because of the story of Jesus, we know what evil is because of the story yeah. of Jesus. And that really makes unintelligible so much of what we're claiming apart from that narrative, apart from mm-hmm. this central scandal of the incarnation. I, I'm curious because you already mentioned that like in love, Jesus, he speaks to systems. Like he flips mm-hmm. tables over. He's able to to speak to whole structures of injustice. And yet I often find that, that the North American experience in particular segments Tends to only want to name a sort of uh, a personalized moralistic evil. It's like it's evil to you know dress a bit salaciously, but we're never going to name um, wider injustices like economic injustice. it's It's always limited to the personal for some folks. And, and so i'm I'm curious, how can you help us out here? how How do we avoid the trap of only thinking evil is limited to personal responsibility? And not complicity in systems.
2: Yeah, and and I would add. I mean, I, I would maybe the starting point is even nuancing how you frame like North America, right? Yeah, some yeah. North Americans, yeah. right? Yeah, so thank you for that. Frame it in some yeah. ways, and there's yeah, always been that's right true. another perspective. Mm. Um, and I think maybe that's where it's quite helpful. And, and so let's go back to the Jesus story, right? Um, so Jesus goes into the temple, and he, you know. He gathers his folks together, right? Mm. And he's like, look, you know, um, these folks, they devour widows' homes, right? Like, that's his critique, right? One of the critiques. He has multiple, but that's one of his critiques. They devour widows' homes. There was a mic drop right
0: there, man. (laughs) Right?
2: He's (laughs) aware of the harm that these elites in Jerusalem who have cahoots with the Roman Empire— and the wealthy elite families of Jerusalem, the ways in which they are exploiting and taking everything from widows, right? Um, and that's actually tied to a lot of people miss that that's tied to the whole story of the widow giving the last bit, right? And we could have a whole conversation on that. But I think what's powerful there is he's naming. so not only he confronting the Jerusalem establishment in and of itself, but he's being very particular about the ways in which this is harming uh, the least last lost the little ones, right uh, in in the community. And so um, I think that that can only be the case when we have proximity to and are living in solidarity with and understand the lived experiences and have and have inherited and hold on sacred to the stories of those that are most impacted, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that there's no way to actually name those kind of things and see the systems unless your lives are actually intertwined in meaningful ways. Mm -hmm. And so I think that, um, one of the, the challenges to moving away from that is people kind of saying goodbye to white dominant cultural kind of commitments, right. Mm -hmm. Um, and relationships as being the anchor upon which they live their lives, Mm -hmm. um, to step away and say, that's not going to be my anchor. It doesn't mean that you don't interact with people who are part of dominant culture but it says i'm not going to anchor my lived experience <clears throat> the lens through which i see the world um the stories that i hold most sacred right that i'm seeking after um to shape my understanding of what's happening in the world it has to be tied intimately, just like the Jesus story. Like Jesus is just, he's like a magnet, literally, to those on the margins, edges, and cracks of society, right? Like he just drawn to them. And that's the kind of lives that we ought to live. And when we're doing that, when we're actually living that way, you're going to you are gonna understand the stories. You're going to understand the problems. You understand that. So in my context, right, like you're living, if you're living in the hood in, in Harrisburg, you understand that we have, uh, everywhere's a teacher shortage, but yeah. in Harrisburg, we got a crisis, right? Yeah. Like we got one grade yeah. in my kid's elementary school where they got <laughs> one teacher left and she's resigning, right? Like it's a crisis. You yeah. um, yeah. we, we understand the underfunded school systems. You understand that people don't have affordable uh, and livable homes to live in, right? That they don't have affor- uh, livable wages that they're living off of. You understand um, the unsafe streets that many children have to kind of navigate. So you understand mm-hmm. like all these different dynamics um, that people don't have adequate healthcare, preventative healthcare and are dying unnecessarily because of all kinds of stuff, both mm-hmm. in terms of, you know, the pandemic, but also has been going on way before then. Right. Mm-hmm. Like once you you're living intimate and in proximity to those who are on the underside of our society, um, you're going to see differently. And you're going to be able to name those dynamics differently as well. And so I think it is, again, a feature of the Jesus story to live into mm-hmm. that um, mm-hmm. and to take seriously not just the things Jesus says, but who Jesus spends time with and what are his commitments, right? His relational, social, we could even say sociopolitical commitments in terms of his relationships.
0: So, follow-up question for you, like how, how do you go about that moving into the neighborhood? How how do you have proximity when so much of like systemic realities can keep, keep us apart? Like um like for example, like the the practice of redlining mortgages, the practice of, like the whole setup of the suburban structure which isolates whole communities economically and mirrors an injustice in the city. How does one get close when, when the systems are keeping us apart?
2: Yeah. So, number one, I think first you have to name and identify. So, I think so many people aren't aware of, right, yeah. how these systems have been structured to organize a society in a particular way. And so, mm-hmm. once we can name the redlining, once we can name, you know, the, in, in my community, you know, right across the river from where I live um in like camp hill i think it was like a third of the homes had racially restricted deeds on them you know what i mean it was a high level um once you understand like all these different dynamics the sundown towns the hostility right who was welcome where and all that kind of stuff um and all ongoing the realty practices even in the present day that Mm -hmm. continue to perpetuate Mm -hmm. these issues (laughs) um then you have hard decisions to make right um because i think there's the systems and then we have to kind of own our own the way that we've been socialized, the desires that have been socialized within us.
1: Oh, right Yes
2: Are that, that literally our own wants have been created and customized by these racially segregating practices. Ooh, and so don't say that. <laughs> yeah, you oh, know man.
1: And, and nobody I gotta go
2: say a quick
0: prayer for <laughs> repentance
2: <laughs> but, but here's the thing like everyone said you know I want to I, I wanna get the best neighborhoods right and I don't wanna live in that bad neighborhood and mm-hmm. everybody knows that when people say they're talking about race and class always yeah. it's always yeah. about race and class there's never there's no somehow talking about race and class when people are saying good neighborhoods and bad neighborhoods right okay. um, and so how we've already predetermined um quality and value of neighborhoods based on the socialized way that we've been taught to interpret them right and so i think that um we've got to do some self-interrogation also if we're going to resist these patterns if we're going to not be completely compl- i don't know if we can i don't know if there's a way to not be complicit in any form i think that's impossible it's always going to be messy but i do think that um it's going to take intentionality and it's also going to take some wisdom right because the, the pattern then is sometimes is that white people just come in and then gentrify neighborhoods. Right. And so it's going to take (laughs) a little bit more wisdom about around like um, what is a healthy way to engage and move into neighborhoods or not move into particular neighborhoods to not just follow trends, right. What all the cool white people are doing and all the hip trends and where all the coffee shops and stuff are popping up. Like how do we resist some of that so that we can actually um, engage healthy? But that's ongoing relationships. That's submitting to the wisdom of elders and others who've been at this work for a long time. Um, I think that that's part of the process. Uh,
1: Drew, I think you've just kicked a hornet's nest. So thank you so much. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's what, this, we want.
0: This, what we want. like, just the last few like minutes, I was like, we already, we already got the gold. It's right there, man. Like, so good. <laughs>
1: that's it. That is so it. Thank you. Oh my goodness. Okay. So I'm just going to be very vulnerable and say when we're at least my experience in my space, whenever we start trying to call out or even bring to light or naming some of these evils that are found within systems and patterns, people get really riled up. And it's like they're my experience is they're receiving it as a personal attack and like, well, I had nothing to do with that. I didn't, you know. Instead of just like taking a step back and saying, okay, but how am I benefiting? How am I participating either willingly or unwillingly in this pattern in the system? And so something I've had to really work on is not in my desire to bring things to light or to speak out, um, I've had to work at not doing like an us versus them thing like, Oh, them over there. And we've got it right. Why can't they see, you know, just that whole mentality. So how drew can you help us see that when we try to us versus them, when we try to separate ourselves and calling out evil, the danger in that, like, how do we avoid falling into that mindset? It's really hard. I think.
2: Yeah, it is very hard. Um, I think, I mean, I think social psychologists, or uh, would would say, you know, embedded in humanity is this inclination to do in-group, out-group thinking, right? Yeah, we're just so yeah. inclined to that. Um, and you know, I, I tease when I talk about it with students. I, I, t- I like, now I grew up in Philly, where you know, it's an Eagles. You know, everything's Eagles. Yeah. And if you grew up in Philly, Poor one team that you know you hate, <laughs> right? It's hey, the Cowboys, yeah, yeah for the sure. Yes. Right, <laughs> I'm
1: from Texas, so I get it. So you it know, be, right?
2: Would it, just, would it be you're accurate born into this, right? Yeah, and mm-hmm. we're good, yeah. and they're evil, right? And mm-hmm. that's just the paradigm, for right? Sure. Everything that they do is just terrible. They're horrible. Their fans are terrible. The team is terrible, and we're just good, good, good. Everything, right? Well, in mm-hmm. some ways, we can approach the world in that kind of way as well, and maybe it's not as serious and it's more play when it's sports. Right. Um, but, but when you're actually doing it in real life, uh, with real people, um, you begin to actually create straw man arguments and you're actually not engaging with human beings anymore. Right. And I think that's part of the problem that when you, um, when you engage in that us, them kind of paradigms, you know, it's a loss of shared humanity that's at stake. Right. And we wonder why we can't actually engage our deepest problems. Um, If we can't actually have meaningful, difficult, right? Not watered down, but difficult conversations. It's going to require that we actually um, see people's full humanity, all the the multidimensional realities that exist, right? Um, That we recognize that, no one is one dimensional, that that people are not as simplistic as we would like to characterize them as, right? And so anyway, I I think that that is a part of the challenge is to break out of that. And I do think that is the call of love, right? Love invites us to see people's full humanity. It invites us to affirm the dignity and value of each person, that every person is made in the image of God. And so I think that, um, yeah, that is the only way forward that's not just going to increase polarization. It doesn't, again, yeah. promise that we're going to navigate mm-hmm. all the problems easily. And it doesn't also mean that sometimes there are groups of people who are engaging in grave harm and evil that needs to be yeah. named as such, right? So we don't Absolutely. have to... I don't like the... Uh, so on one hand, we have to not... Uh, get into the us, them games. and On the other hand, we can't just conflate everything as the same, right? right? And right. so those are the oh challenges. When there's massive... I, I say in my book, Who Will Be a Witness, you know, we can't just play halfsies on serious evil, right? Mm-hmm. Um right. Just be centrist on mm-hmm. everything. That's not the answer Love either. Right? And so, so it's that. that real challenge of naming and being truthful, but in such ways that we ought to actually hold ourselves to higher standard than we hold others, right? That's mm-hmm. why we say the church, we sometimes seems like we expect more of others than we expect of ourselves. And what Jesus invited us to do is the opposite, which is right to pull out literally the log out of our own eye before we go for the speck Mm -hmm. in others. And so we ought to be Mm -hmm. a community of accountability, right? That Mm -hmm. can actually speak truthfully. And I think that lacks um, in both conservative and progressive spaces where there's not a holding uh, an, an ethic of accountability that can speak honestly and truthfully and love to one another within their own communities where they share more values and convictions than maybe others do.
1: Mm -hmm. I'm going to need that Habsies quote on a t-shirt. So if you could work that up and (laughs) send it my way. We can't go
0: Habsies on evil. That's so good. (laughs) So A Mm follow-up question for you. Something I want to just kind of explore is like, so you're naming, you're naming evil. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Um, And something like in my own experience of this, of like going to different churches, traditions. Like part of my story is I went over to Angle, uh, England and I worked with some Anglicans and something I experienced in their daily liturgy was this just naming of repentance. You know, most merciful God, we confess mm. that we have sinned against you in thought, word and deed um, every day. And I was like, this is kind of strange. And I realized I had this like aha moment that in in my context, which was very based on like a Puritan culture of like we can escape evil that we are set aside from evil that that sort of like if we talk about it it must be immediately remedied and sort of the casualness Ooh. of just saying every day man I need grace I need repentance um it did something for me and and my own admission about like yeah I am broken and I'm curious like as, as we begin to like lean into naming evil um what does it mean to to work against that Puritan tendency of like, it's a crisis, it's shame, it's it's heavy. Um, people accuse you of kicking the hornet's nest because you're willing to just have a, an, an honesty that the Jesus uh, himself models. Like, Do you have any advice for us on that?
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I think when we see that sin runs through all of us mm-hmm. um, and that we're all prone, and I think when we can even acknowledge that if I was in a different situation, so I often say, look, if I was born white, I imagine my ethics would be a lot different. Not, not necessarily saying that they'd be good, but I w- I think I can recognize that I've been socialized because of my own lived experiences that help me interpret and make sense of the world. Other people have been socialized in such ways in that um, that, that contributes to them not seeing and not naming and inclined to... You know, it's our own self-interest, right? That shapes so much of what we know and what we interpret and take in in terms of data of information. And so, I think that when we can recognize that um, there's nothing inherently different about my humanity and another person's humanity in and of itself. Now, we can do things to it, right? We can corrupt our own humanity. We can make choices that diminish. Um, the ways that we live into that, but I don't think that we are fundamentally different in terms of the essence of what it means to be human. Um, so yeah, I, I, we we must confess, right? That, but not only confess. I think that even in many Christian traditions, that confess that, um, you know, that it's a more everyday practice. It's a habit, right, to confess mm-hmm. sin. Sometimes it's still narrow though, right? Because it's still about mm. personal sins. Yeah. So you wonder like, you mentioned like Church of England, uh, you wonder what would right? have happened if, if they had a more broader right, history of naming sins in terms of oppression and yeah. coloni- conquests and exploitation, how the Church of England's history might have been different with colonial conquests globally, right? Mm-hmm. Um, how they would have spoken up and engaged and maybe identified with those um, in a different way on that more bigger story, not just on the individual story. And so I think for all of us, we need to, and that's the same, like, right. I always tell my students, like, look, to be an American right now, like I can talk about what it means to be black, but I'm also an American who pays taxes. That means I'm complicit in all kinds of harm here and globally, right. By the mere mm-hmm. fact that just that simple acts nonetheless all the other complex things in terms of consumer products and such. Right. And so um, we must confess our sins in the ways that we mm. are intertwined and a part of a deep, complex web that can be for good and also for a lot of harm.
1: Mm. Mm. Uh, Drew, where I'm from, what you just did is uh, when they say you've done quit preaching and gone the meddling, like you mm. are getting in the business, yeah. and it is so good. So for those who are listening, and maybe this is new for them, this whole idea of evil being overcome by suffering love and this, this idea that we look at Jesus, who was all about others-oriented, self-sacrificial love, and and they hear about this suffering love, and they're like, yeah, that that doesn't sound good. I'm not liking the way that sounds. Um, how do you understand what suffering love is, and how would you unpack that for those who are just starting to lean into this conversation? And for those of us who have been around a while, but still kind of wristle a little bit in practice.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think if I were to frame suffering love, how I would go about talking about it is again, thinking about the climax. So in Matthew, Mark and Luke in particular, the climax of the story is in fact, uh, Mark and Luke, it's like, Jesus is like, he's heading to Jerusalem, right? Like he's coming. Like that's his face, right? Like he Mm -hmm. said, that's Luke, right? He set his Mm -hmm. face toward it. He's on his way. He's coming. And so you had this, this clash coming right this confrontation is set up from the very beginning it's not this kind of coincidental thing that eventually happens but it's just like jesus is coming to confront jerusalem and the establishment and the temple leaders and those who are part of the elite you know sanhedrin and elite families and such and so if we see that as a narrative like sometimes we read the gospel stories um in so many little pieces and, and hardly ever as one coherent flow of story, right? But when we hear this story, Jesus heading to Jerusalem, he clashes with them, he confronts it, and anybody knows what happens. You don't go to Jerusalem, flip tables, call out the leadership, and then expect that there's not going to be any consequences, right? No, the yeah. empire always, right, mm-hmm. always strikes back.
1: Always. Yeah.
0: And oh, yeah. So, thank you. Thank you for our Star Wars <laughs> friends. <Stop> it.
2: <laughs> and so, like, I think for us to, to realize that the way of taking up the cross is about accepting the consequences that come with faithfulness, right? That there are consequences that can come with following Jesus. Um, Now, I would say, like, you know, I wouldn't say that all love is suffering love because there's times when we, not all love, love can be joyful. Lo- love is great, right? But there are times in which, you know, especially when we're confronting evil, where you have to accept the consequences that come with that, that you can't imagine that you're going to speak truth to power and that there's not going to be any blowback. It just doesn't work like that. That's just naive about how the world works, right? And so I think that for me, when I'm thinking about what suffering love is, it's the story of Jesus once again. But in particular, I'm thinking about that confrontation and the fact mm-hmm. that Jesus understands, he tells us like, to count the costs, to understand what's at stake, and then decide if you're really about this, right? And if you're about that life, then let's go. And if you're not, mm-hmm. stay back, right? Um, but there mm-hmm. are consequences, and there's always been, right? Like you think about I think about Ida B. Wells. Um, confronting, you know, yeah. lynching throughout the United States, right? Yeah. Courageous. I mean, she was just being a badass, basically mm-hmm. speaking up, mm-hmm. but she does so in such a way that she's literally run out of town. She yeah. can't come back home. Like that that's the result, right? She can't come back home because there are death threats. They put money down on her life. And yeah. so there are consequences, right? So we can talk about the great legacy that she had in terms of the crusade against lynching but we also got to name that there are consequences she had to accept right yeah. um and that it impacted her life and so the the movement to fight against lynching um would have never happened except for what we can call suffering love
1: mm. <laughs> that is so good drew um and i'm just gonna get real like immature here and say but that's not fair all the time right like yeah it's Absolutely. not it's not easy and it's not fair. and so why <laughs> help me <laughs> in yeah. my in my naivety, help me understand, help our audience understand why is evil overcome by suffering love and not by making evildoers suffer because it seems on the surface that if they suffer, that would be a greater like, see here, don't be doing this business or let let's you know fight against this. Um, but yet yeah, the Jesus way is, to overcome by suffering love, through suffering love. Yeah.
2: So, it, well, let's first say it's not fear, And one of the challenges <laughs> that even before I what? Fully it's answer not your fair? question, right?
1: It's <laughs> not like, fair. It, but, but,
2: but I do think like to lean into that for a moment and say, one of the challenges for those that have more power, more advantages in society is that they must actually take up the burden so that it's not so disproportionately distributed, right? It's already dis- mm-hmm. disproportionately distributed. Mm-hmm. And the, the call for those that don't, that are living comfortable lives now as followers of Jesus is that they're going to share some of that. So it's not so intense on just so few people, yes. right? So then yes. we're standing in solidarity mm-hmm. together, right? We're struggling mm-hmm. together um, and we're, we're kind of linked up. And so it, that it doesn't make it go away, but I do think it, 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 you know, we can, I can't pick up a thousand pounds on my own, but if, you know, there's 10 of us holding it up, it's not so bad. Right. Um, And I think that that's the kind of mindset that I think even when we think about suffering. So your question though, was um, in terms of like, yeah, why not make others suffer? And I think really the challenge, the, the way that I think about it is in terms of, you know, the kind of paradigms around punitive justice versus restorative justice, right? And this really comes down to our capacity to see other people as um, valuable, regardless of what they've done, that they still have worth and value. And that there is, again, this possibility of repentance and restoration. Mm
0: -hmm.
2: And I think that the desire to make other people suffer it sometimes can have short term satisfaction right i mean there might be some ways in which someone's life might actually get better from the, some of those short term actions but you're not inviting people into a whole new world you're just reproducing yeah. you know it's redirecting the suffering yeah um and i think the invitation is can we move to a world uh this kingdom of god strive towards it in such ways that we can all um be our full selves the way that God desires for us to be God's dream for us literally to lean mm-hmm. into that right um mm-hmm. and that's going to require not see, rejecting the idea that anybody's disposable mm. um and I, it's hard I know that that's been hard uh, I can talk about some family stories
1: mm-hmm. uh we've had
2: a um I won't get into the details but a when I was a little baby a family member that was murdered for my family, and um, and it still haunts our story. Yeah. And we don't all yeah. engage with this question the same way in our presence. But um, but you know, at some point, I guess the question is, are people disposable? Um, and mm. and are we capable of somehow, even when it's really difficult, even when I'll be honest, I still get angry and all yeah. kind of stuff, right? Um, and yet once a lean into a world upon which, you know, we can have healthy ways of living and, and interacting with others. And so, I don't know. It, it, I don't know if there's any easy way out of, you know, some yeah. complexity of it. Like, I think we have to feel the messiness of it if we're going to be mm-hmm. honest about um, yes. kind of moving forward. But I do believe that every val- every life matters. Mm-hmm. Every life. When, when yeah. folks say Black Lives Matter and we say, you know, well, it's across the spectrum. We're talking about every single life that matters, right? Uh, I would say that for everyone, every life matters. um, And that Mm -hmm. we ought to hold life itself as sacred and valuable. Um, And even folks who have done heinous things, um, their life in and of itself is still valuable. And we've got to kind of adjust how we see it. And at least imagine, even if it's complicated even if it calls for significant reparations, that there's mm. always a path back mm-hmm. to restoration, and I think that that mm. is some yeah. of the hard work that
0: we've got to do. Mm. Uh, yeah. I want to name. I want to name that. Like as we prepare for this conversation, it wasn't lot lost on me that I'm like, hey, I'm talking to my friend True here, and a black activist. Like ha- he comes from this tradition that has so much to say on this, um, and I, I'm discovering that black voices uniquely have something to say on this. Like one of the books I read in 2020 around the time of George Floyd's murder was Jesus and the and the disinherited by Howard Thurman, which um Dr. King he he apparently like traveled with a copy of that book like in his in his like pocket or something. Um, and so like Howard Thurman he writes this. He says like the disinherited must recognize fear, deception, hatred, each for what it is. Once having done this, they must learn how to destroy these or to render themselves immune to their domination. In so great an undertaking, the disinherited will know for themselves that there is a spirit at work in life and in the hearts of men, which is committed to overcoming the world. And I think like I read Thurman, I read the legacy of the black church, and it brings me all to this question. Like, why do you think historically the voices of the disinherited, specifically BIPOC voices, why is it they have a greater understanding of the ends needing to be incorporated within the means of peace? it, It really raises the question for me. What are BIPOC voices seeing about overcoming evil that Eurocentric Christendom voices have a hard time seeing?
2: Yeah, I I guess, well, I want to say this first, right? I don't necessarily think that BIPOC people have always necessarily have a better sense of the means or ends in and of itself, but I do think they have a better sense of the issues that need to be debated on those Mm. points, right? So I would say, like, I mean, you look in the Black community, these are hotly debated issues, right? Mm. Uh, how do we respond to evil? I mean, if I went around on my block, I could I could start a real quick argument instantly by just bringing up you know the means by which we respond to evil, um, because there always has been from under slavery mm. um, this debate. I mean, I mean, even who was it? Frederick Douglass and I forget his name. They were, had this really famous you know debate um, about how to respond. Certainly, all through the twentieth century these really hot debates I know in Mm -hmm. people's minds, you know, people think about King and and Malcolm X and this debate about how to respond. And so, um, so I guess there it's, it's their lived experiences. I mean, they don't have the luxury of not grappling with these questions. Right. Like Mm -hmm. this is their life. Um, They must wrestle with these
0: things. They don't Um, have the power over. Right. They only have power under.
2: And so, so for them, Um, getting to to wrestle with you know their lived experience as it relates to um, both means and ends I think are the inevitable parts of what it means to be oppressed in a society right Mm. Um, and I guess the difference is that you know those that are advantaged in society you know in fact, they're asking not only to come up with different answers, they're asking a whole different set of questions, right? <laughs> they're, it's a very different question. Altogether. Why why are those folks rioting, right? <clears throat> why can't they just yeah. obey the law? This is a different set of questions, right? Um, yeah. And they're not aware of how their very questions are can only be produced in a context where you live outside of those that are disproportionately suffering, that you're a part of the system that is creating those problems. That's the only way that you can ask those kind of questions. Right. And so I think, um, mm-hmm. again, when we think about, um, you know, the Jesus story, one of the things I, in fact, I have a whole chapter that I know a lot of people appreciate this particular chapter and who will be a witness. It's called liberating Barabbas. But in that chapter, what, what I want them to see is precisely that, that you have barabbas and jesus not as the the sinful one and the sinless one that's not the point right the point is that they're presented with two serious options for how to deal with the oppression in their world yeah oh, right yeah. and that's why barabbas shows up in every single one of the gospel stories every single one we don't even get the christmas story right in all of them but we got <laughs> but we got barabbas and they say consistently despite how Western society has characterized Brabus as some crazed maniac, just serial killer, killing people randomly for no reason. What they say is he was down for the cause, right? What they say is he, was, he participated in the uprising. He he participated in the rebellion. And so he's a freedom fighter struggling because he cares about his people and he wants to see them free and liberated from the suffering that they're dealing with, right? He wants to get Rome's uh, foot off their neck. And so when I think about the Jesus story then It's precisely right at that conflict where people's actual lived experiences force you to grapple and to dream of a world where your neighbors are not being humiliated by Roman soldiers, right? Where you're not being exploited and all your money's being taken and given to the rich. Uh, In a world where, you know, they have... uh, uh, Self determination and can live before God and worship God fully the way that they desire to. Right, um, that's the kind of world that is inevitable. That's within them. That's bursting out. That's forcing them to wrestle with these kind of questions around means and ends. And I think that um, it's it's a daring step to actually say then, in line with Jesus and King and Bonhoeffer and so many others, to somehow imagine that that we're gonna to begin to participate in God's future breaking into our present world. And I think that that's mm-hmm. the difference. And that can only be explained by faith, right? Mm-hmm. I, I actually completely get folks who wanna, like, uh, I'm not sure, I mean, it sounds nice, it sounds idealistic, but I'm not quite sure I'm all in. I get, I, that makes sense to me. I understand how people can get yeah. there because you actually have, it. it's not just a <laughs> mathematical equation, It's a deep belief that God is going to overcome the evil of this world and that a new world Mm -hmm. is possible.
1: Oh, that's so good. I think the reason why I'm loving this conversation so much, because this isn't just theory, or this is a great idea, if you could, you know, wrap your head around it, this, this idea of suffering love, overcoming evil, and especially when you're talking about systems and patterns, like we've, we've talked about, these are people's real lives, like we really have to embody this in the here and now every day, it wasn't just something that ended you know, with Jesus and certainly not with Dr. King or anyone else, you know, it's, this is something we have to embody. How can we lean into God's example through Jesus, you know, sacrificing um, of himself to show love to others? Like we have to grapple with that. What does that mean for me as I am encountering people and systems and ideologies? How, How can I lean into suffering love instead of going tit for tat? Or, want you know, wanting to give sass back or, you know, wanting to tell someone, like, what it is because they think they know and they don't know. Like, there are so many instances, like, when we can embody this, like, every moment of every day. And that's why I love this conversation. This isn't just something that we're like, oh, yeah, go think about this, read about it, pontificate on it. No, like, we need to put these things into practice. And only by the power of the Spirit can we embody this suffering love and we have to keep returning to it and keep returning to it and keep returning to it. So thank you, Drew so much for all that you're sharing with us today. Thank you. Mm.
0: So I I was just recently reading one of my friend's new books, um, Brad Jirzak. He wrote a book called out of the Ambers and he has this whole like couple chapters on actually engaging black voices as a practice of reconstruction. Um, And so he, he brings up uh, Howard Thurman and Cone and all of that. And, Uh, He has this really telling line where he says in the book, he's like, the disinherited often hear forgiveness as the F word, a profane demand for silence, an order that bypasses truth and suppresses our hunger for justice. And so I'm curious, like, as we're encouraging those listening in to this podcast right now, like evil is overcome by suffering love. How do we avoid our commitment to reconciliation? being used as a way to silence the marginalized and suppress the truth. In my context here in Canada, um, with indigenous voices, um, there's often this sentiment of like, it happened so long ago. Why don't you forgive and just get over it? Uh, there's, there's this attempt to just demand re- reconciliation without truth. And, and there are other examples of this. We see this recently in examples of like sexual abuse among clergy in the church. And there's this sense of like, oh, you're going to ruin this man's career. And it's typically a man. Um, Why can't you just forgive and forget? Uh, And I think I can think of other examples of of, of, of black voices being told like, you know, wasn't slavery so long ago and not. Yeah. yeah, And it just like it disheartens me that we can weaponize this in a way to silence marginal voices. And I'm curious what you might say to that.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's no question that uh, forgiveness has been co-opted and has been made into a tool for social domination and oppression. Right. And so I think we have to be aware of those things and then think about how it's actually functioning and then reimagine practices um, in ways that are actually liberating and healthy. And so for me, um, first and foremost, and, and let me say this. Let me go back. Let me say one thing. I do think there there there's limits to saying, using the phrase suffering love, if we don't also talk about like resurrection, right? <laughs> um, Cause then it, it can invite people to only think about um, what it means to suffer, right? And and how do I kind of just always suffering, always kind of uh, uh, taking on, you know, the brunt of the harm and the evil in our world. And so I do think that with, Death, there must also be resurrection. And I think that when white Christians in particular are framing forgiveness, um, it is always about, you know, black and indigenous and people of color, right? On their ongoing suffering and no new worlds, no resurrection, no new life being committed to,
0: right? Um, oh, that's so good. Like eschatology matters for this reason. Yeah. And and not even just
2: yeah. eschat, but even in the present, right? The well, resurrection exactly the now and the world. not yet. Yeah, yeah, in the now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In the now. That the that moment. it matters. And so when, when we um reframe forgiveness in healthy ways, it's we it has to be liberating. I mean, that's Thurman's point, is right? Mm. That Jesus, he's You know, he he was a Jew. He was a poor Jew. He was a poor Jew living under Roman occupation, right? Like, those are his three points. Like, now we can have a conversation. And that his message then is first and foremost to those who've got their backs against the wall, right? That's Thurman. That's a starting point. And so when we think about forgiveness in that point, all of a sudden then we got to realize, like, forgiveness is a tool that's actually liberative, right? It's about release. It's about not letting, you know, people joke about like someone's living rent free in your head. It's not allowing your oppressors to live rent free in your head. Right. It's not allowing them to to impact your character and quality of life so that you don't become bitter, so that hatred doesn't seep in and destroy and deteriorate your own humanity. Right. And so I think when we think about forgiveness in that way, not first and foremost, that's why I tell people there's different kinds of forgiveness, not all forgiveness Mm -hmm. as far as I'm concerned is about extending forgiveness. Mm -hmm. There's an internal forgiveness, a healing, a liberating, a releasing that -hmm. can happen first and foremost. That's a gift. That's a, so so that you can be your full self, Mm -hmm. live with joy and love, uh, Um, you know, interrelationships with others in healthy ways, um, that kind of healing is necessary. And so I think when we see that our own um, liberation is actually dependent upon forgiveness, right? First and foremost, again, internally, I think that's really powerful. Then when we think about like reconciliation, like not all forgiveness, like forgiveness is one part of reconciliation, right? But, you know, not all reconciliation is possible.
1: Right. Mm-hmm.
2: There are Agreed. some folks yeah. that are ju- are intense on doing you harm. Um, yeah. <laughs> right. They're 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 seeking to destroy you, and yeah. reconciliation is not possible. And in fact, it would be unwise to be mm-hmm. extending forgiveness to some people verbally. It's just not. Mm-hmm. It's not always. And so, I actually don't think that we always have to be verbally, even if you've forgiven them internally and you've done some healing doesn't mean you always have to be extending that you there's has to be some wisdom in terms of how and when and why um Mm. because i think that white people white dominant culture in particular tends to try to co-opt that weaponize it and create it into an ideological expectation for how everyone ought to act and they create new Mm. archetypes right Mm. for behavior for black people or those that are, are oppressed and so i think that um that we've gotta have a nuance in terms of the internal and then the external act of forgiveness. Um, Now, it doesn't mean that we, I think Christians to to be a Christian is to forgive and to forgive others. So it doesn't mean that we don't embody that in the public square, that we're not coming for for blood. We're not coming for retribution or revenge, right? In the public square in response to enemies, Mm -hmm. folks that do us harm. But it doesn't always mean that we have to verbalize it in that particular way depending on the harm that can be done because people, they're seeking... We've been here for centuries, right? Um, And we've seen the way that uh, forgiveness has been individualized and weaponized so that it benefits those in power and doesn't hold people accountable. Then, of course, we can begin to talk about how truth Mm. and uh, reparations also need to be brought into the conversation around forgiveness, right? So forgiveness is not... Uh, forgive and forget forgiveness is actually a kind of remembering um it's actually a healing memory right um and so it's a truthful telling um both to oneself um in a way that is healing but also then to hold other people account to expose to unveil the harms in the public square as well and so truth and forgiveness actually need to be intertwined together and that's the only way upon which then uh, those that are engaging in harm have the possibility that they can repent and do differently right is by exposing pulling back the curtain on the harm that's being done and so we've got to tell truthful narratives of what's happening again i'll go back to the united states we, we live in a society is united states of amnesia right of denial right um yeah. and so like we we can't actually heal we can't have liberation we can't have thriving in terms of god's dream for all of creation because we're literally uh living into uh you know we could call it nostalgic stories of past that never existed right recreated uh for the benefits of those that are in power. and so I think that um yeah, truth telling is necessary must be combined mm-hmm. and then reparations is necessary too right that the call to do repair, that um, that's not also not separate from sometimes people think that's opposite of of forgiveness repair is not about punitive like um mm-hmm. just making people suffer right? just because it's about restoring relationships and setting things right um, the way that they ought to be and creating, the goal is wholeness and justice and peace. Uh, that's the goal of reparations is that healing can actually take place and that actual reconciliation at the end of all those things, mm. forgiveness, reparations, truthfulness, right, um, is possible, um, that kind of shalom mm. that we're kind of seeking mm. after.
0: This reminds me very much of what you're saying, Drew. Um, here in Canada, in our context, because certainly we have our own, Uh, checkered past. Um, And and as we began to have conversation about what it meant to speak truthfully about Indigenous realities um, in our Canadian context we have residential schools which were just these awful constructions where children were taken from their home and, and essentially colonized. And, and, and Mm -hmm. as we, as a nation, we're still in this process, but one of our early leaders in this was Senator Murray Sinclair and he launched borrowing from South Africa. He launched a truth and reconciliation commission. And one of his big taglines that a lot of Canadians know is there can be no reconciliation without the truth there can be no reconciliation without the truth. And I hear you saying that, That yeah, truth is, is so important. All right. I'm going to throw it over to you, (laughs) Shauna. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Gosh. I was just kind of wrapped up in what all was being said. Um, But Drew, for those who, because this is a, this is a process growing in this reality of the Jesus way of suffering love to overcome evil um, I don't think it's something we just arrive at and we're good to go. Like, this is a process. And so, what is your encouragement for someone who wants to grow in overcoming evil with suffering love?
2: Hmm. That's a great question. What is my encouragement? Um, I guess, you know, if someone is going to grow in that, I mean, there's a few things. One, I mean, it sounds over simplistic, but I do think we have to get back to the basics of discipleship. Mm-hmm. Um, like, what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? Because in some ways that is the encouragement, right? <laughs> in overcoming like we've so redefined following Jesus that it's not inherently about overcoming evil with good right. and love right mm. and so something about our christianity itself is so corrupted so mangled so diseased that um it's kind of again has it had us majoring in the minors and minoring in the majors yeah so i think that that would be one thing that i would say but i do think you know there's gotta i, I would also you know we just have to begin to practice it, right? It has to be embodied. Mm-hmm. Like it can't just be an intellectual thought. And so like mm-hmm. when, when you know, liberation theologians, I'd say Anabaptists as well, right? We, we talk about, um, you know, praxis. It is, you know, reflective action and active reflection, right? It's mm. the combination of the two together as a cycle, right? And so it doesn't begin <laughs> sitting back just pontificating right like it begins like you reflect as you are embodying this yeah and so like speak up (laughs) right link up find who's doing the good work already in your community who's already confronting evil who's already overcoming evil participate in that work and reflect Mm -hmm. on it and grow from it and think about Mm -hmm. what it means to be a follower of jesus within that context. And I think that that's a really
0: helpful starting point as well. Mm -hmm. So good. I'm going to ask you one more question and then we'll, uh, we'll head towards the uh, wrapping this up. And I just, again, I want to just share some appreciation for this conversation. It's so rich. Uh, My question is really a hopeful question, Um, but I also want to name for many folks, like you begin to name evil and there's this immediate lapse into like despair and nihilism Uh, you begin to actually see how broken the world is. And it's like, oh, you just want to throw up your your hands. And so I'm kind of curious, like, how do we cultivate hope, faith, love in our work to overcome evil with good? How do we sustain a dream in the midst of a present and immediate nightmare?
2: Mm. Yeah. So, you know, this is, especially right now, this feels like um. really pertinent question i mean i know so many black christians that are struggling right now right Mm -hmm. um you know there's a growing movement around afro pessimism which is you know basically like you know i learned a new word everyone (laughs) yeah this is a permanent like race anti-blackness in particular is a permanent Mm -hmm. feature embedded into life so pervasively so embedded in society that it will always be a feature that we cannot get out of, that we can't break. It's so deep into the psyche, not just into the institutions, but the psyche of our frameworks of thinking, our cognitive frameworks that we can't get out of it, right? Um, And look, like they've got good evidence to make their arguments, right? They got centuries of history to look at. Like even with all the changes, anti-Blackness did not go away right? the There's a mutating of systems and structures um, that do harm, but still we have disproportionate anti-Black suffering, right? Um, all throughout our society. And so when we think about that, um, it's easy for despair to kind of take, you know, its hooks and grab you. And so I think for me, if we're going to cultivate hope, it can't just be Promising another world to come, we also have to embody that in the present for others and in community together, and show that another world is actually possible. Mm-hmm. And so, I often talk about like we need to be the hope, faith, and love for others, right? Mm-hmm. Like sometimes people ask me, <coughs> excuse me. Sometimes people ask me like, you know, you know, what gives you hope, right? That's the question people get. And I say, you know, you know what gives me hope? It's my neighbors (laughs) who show up, right? It's the folks that I link arms with. And I know that they're there and that they're committed. Um, Like they're the embodiment of hope on the ground in their flesh for me. And my prayer is that I'm also that for them, right? And so I guess part of this, it's two things. It's the embodiment of it, but it's also about community that we cannot do this alone, it's not sustainable by yourself. If, you know, sometimes people have these grand kind of dreams of what they're gonna accomplish all by themselves. No, it has to be done in community. And that's why I think gathering together, I know there's a lot of negativity around uh, worship gatherings right now and people kinda, and I get it, there's lots of reasons why there's negativity towards it, but nonetheless, another world is not possible on your own. You cannot embody beloved community by yourself. It's just not possible, right? So we've we've got to do it together. And so we need folks that can sustain us, that can encourage us, that we can be that faith, hope, and love for them, and they can be that for us as well. Um, And I think that that can sustain us, that when we see that this is actually possible on the ground together in glimpses, as it's manifested in our own lives, as we embody it and practice it uh, in deeper and deeper ways together together. That provides hope for each other and also for those that are onlookers, right, Uh, who are in proximity, who cross paths and intersect with our lives as well. And so I think that uh, for me is that's the best I got is the embodiment of these things in community with
1: others. That was a perfect way to end this conversation, Drew. I cannot thank you enough. Thank you seems inadequate, but this has just been such a delight. And there are so many different points in which we could have just drilled on down, but we'd be here four hours later. I don't think anyone has time for that. So all of that to say, thank you so much. You guys, we have just been having this conversation with Dr. Drew Hart, and we pray that you have been enriched by it as much as Paul and I have. Uh, Drew, for those who would love to find your work and get to know more about you and, and read your stuff, listen to your stuff, where can they find you and your work?
2: Yeah, um, so as Paul mentioned in the beginning, you can find my uh, first book is Trouble I've Seen, Changing the Way the Church Views Racism, really great resource for anti-racism and discipleship for the local church. Uh, Who Will Be a Witness? Igniting Activism for God's Justice, Love, and Deliverance. That's a book available all places that's really pushing the church to uh, embody the justice of God in the world. Um, you can find Inverse Podcasts um, on all the different streaming options. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Drew Hart, D-R-U-H-A-R-T. And if you're interested in, um, I do a lot of speaking all around the country. In fact, sometimes the world. And so you can find a contact page at DrewGiHart.com if you want to reach out.
1: Perfect. Thank you again, Drew. Thank you, listening audience, for tuning into this conversation. We will catch you next time. Thanks for tuning in don't forget to check out jesuscollective.com where you can find more resources and upcoming events, learn about getting involved through partnership, and donate so we can keep offering content like this and engage more people and churches around the world. We'd also love to hear from you, so feel free to reach out to us with your ideas and feedback. You can drop us a message on social media or email us at connect at jesuscollective.com. Until next time!